Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Chatting with Asta. Uh, this is a series that I created in order to reach out to different people in my life as both inspirational and informational resources. Um, you know, I've got a lot of friends, old and new, and if you're enjoying this episode especially, don't forget to thumbs up, comment, subscribe, share, and hell, shuffle that playlist because there's plenty of other great voices you can listen to. Uh, today, my guest is Joelle Arajo. She is the co-owner of Fennec Design, and she specializes in printmaking, jewelry design, and she's just this really cool small business owner that I've gotten to know over the years. I am actually wearing something from Fennec Design today. Uh, welcome to the show, Joelle. Hey. hey. <laughs> Woo. So cool to see you. Yeah, I know. Um, you know, before this started, we were kind of talking about how it's like this weird thing where you like view someone through the bubble of like social media. And then when you actually like interact with them, it's uh, can be like a very illuminating experience. Where it's like, oh, that's your body language. That's what yeah. it sounds like. Yeah, and it's it's just been interesting because, like like we were talking a little bit before, um, you're definitely a part of my life. I was so attracted to the different styles and the designs that you and Justin create together. Um, and obviously, like I'm a sucker for couples that have businesses together because I work mm -hmm. and live with my husband, and we do everything together. And people are like, whoa, and. You, how did you start to create Fennec Design? Like, when, when did this come about? Um, so it was totally an accident. <laughs> um, my husband, before I met him, was already doing printmaking. Um, he was in, like, a lot of punk bands in his <laughs> 20s, and he would, like, teach himself how to screen print and, like, make t-shirts for stuff and kind of had gotten into, like, art through this kind of, like, back door of music. Yeah. And um, we started dating, and he was like, oh, you doodle a lot. You should just, like, draw some stuff. We should do some things together. And it just kind of, like, spiraled out of control. Like, I had never really done any art um, when I was younger. It just kind of, like, was a thing that I happened on in my 20s. So very much an accident. You're very talented. Like, oh, thank you. <laughs> I, I love this stuff, and I love that, like, your stuff comes um, inspired by just, like, you know, everything from, like, sacred geometry to, like, medical illustrations, like, the kind you see in those New World books describing each creature, mm -hmm. and, you know, and, like, that organic feel matched up with, like, the way that um, Justin likes to do, like, more of the geometric shapes and sharp mm -hmm. lines, how you combine the two. Mm -hmm. what, what is your favorite, uh, I don't know, what's your favorite critter creature that you like to draw? Oh my gosh, <laughs> I, there's so many. I think I'm like particularly drawn to like bugs, anything with like really specific like clean patterning. I think it's why I like doing like botanicals, bugs. I'm not as like drawn to drawing like mammals. Yeah. Um, like, I'd be more likely to do, like, a bird or a snake. I don't know why. Maybe it's because I hate drawing fur. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I think also it's, like, I don't really want to draw anything that's, like, explicitly cute. And so I think that, like, lots of times I'm, like, looking for something that has that more, like, like scientific, um, like, precise feel to it. Yeah, it's got that... Um symmetrical like design it feels it's very um medical i have some of your stuff here like, like you always send these little cards 
and you like to have like you can kind of like fold it in half always mm -hmm. I have like literally uh, I mean I'm a huge fan guys I've got stickers on my glasses <laughs> they always send stickers I, I write my go my guests like I write, write about you guys in these notebooks and it's just like there's something very pleasing about the the symmetry and about the patterns mm -hmm. it's very it's very calming um but yeah i was i was originally drawn to your stuff because i had an obsession with uh, healing imagery and i always associate mushrooms as like you know earth's like healers and adapt mm -hmm. right right <laughs> I mean, I think, yeah, like, it's interesting because I feel like m most of the artists I'm friends with or that I know, their work is, like, indirectly um, or directly about people, mm -hmm. um, you know, whether it be, like, telling, like, human narratives or, like, literally drawing people. Yeah. <laughs> and so, like, I think it's this strange thing of being like, no, I don't think my work is really about people at all. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think, like, lots of times people make work that's, like, very autobiographical, even, like, indirectly, where it's, like, no, this is about, like, me or my experience or my narrative, and I'm going to, like, present that directly or, like, abstract it, and I think that I'm maybe the opposite, where I want my work to have, like, as little to do with people as possible. I don't know what that says about me. <laughs> um, you know, like, if it's, like, an antisocial tendency or something, but, like, I very rarely would draw something that's, like, man-made. Mm -hmm. or, um, you know, like, a representation of, like, people at all. Yeah, it's got this sort of, like, ancient wisdom uh, feel to it, like, the, like, the things that we've forgotten that are beautiful in the world around us, mm -hmm. and part of it, um, like, something we talked about uh, before, before we started recording was how a few years ago you had presented like a little behind the scenes of your mind and you shared this book and the book was called Never Home Alone by Rob Dunn and it mm -hmm. and it's still on my reading list because I've got like <laughs> a long ass reading list like mm -hmm. I, I don't know why how I prioritize it but it's just like at the right moment um but do you want to talk about that just the idea of like yeah I mean I think that we like to view ourselves as humans as like existing separate from nature you know we want to like view our homes and our things and like the objects that we curate as somehow like separate from like the animal things around us and the reality is is like through our curation through the spaces that we set up we're like actively cultivating different types of ecosystems so like one of the things that he talks about in the book is that like your water heater has like an entire like microcosm inside of it of like particular organisms that like thrive with that kind of heat with like the particular chemical composition within the water and so like through the choices that we make we like indirectly create these like very curated like very specific like microbiomes um which is like very interesting to me and it's also like an area of science that's like largely unexplored mm -hmm. um because you know we're like obsessed with the like obscure things like we want to get down into the like mariana trench and like out into space nobody yeah. wants to like study the bacteria that's growing on the lip of your counter yeah um <laughs> yeah and, and we also are so quick to um hyper sterilize and mm -hmm. you know and, and colonize at that point like yeah i remember after you just pointed that book out and i was like getting ready to like purchase it and it wasn't available at a seller 
that I normally get from. And anyway, I just started thinking about it. And I, I remember every time since that I see a, a bug in the house, like I look at my husband, I'm like, how does this bug affect our ecosystem? Is it the thing getting the mosquitoes? Because if it's mm -hmm. that thing, I don't want to kill this thing. Right. Like, or what can we do? Like, uh, maybe we need to like be better at cleaning sooner. Maybe we need mm -hmm. to like, do this. And it's, it's like um, knowing that and feeling so connected to your own home like that, you just feel an energy shift. Like, mm -hmm. like hippy dippy, but like you feel like, oh, everything counts for something. And yeah, like, oh, all of my choices actually have like direct impact on my environment. Exactly, exactly. And, and that also speaks to like when I started purchasing from you years ago, it became part of this idea of conscious consumerism and how like where we spend our money, how we spend our money and our relationships to the sellers and their ethics and practices, what mm -hmm. it does to the bigger world. Mm -hmm. You guys are very passionate about all of that in your work. Do you want to talk about like all of that? Like sweatshirts? Yeah. I mean, I think I'll preface by saying there's like no ethical consumption under capitalism. And so I think that like ultimately we need to be like, really clear with people that like you are always going to be kind of settling in a way yeah. like I think that people can get like really obsessed with the idea of like well I will eventually make the perfect purchase yeah. <laughs> and I just like you know I think it's like worth saying that like the perfect purchase is like no purchase yeah <laughs> um you know in a lot of ways like the perfect purchase is like choosing to like repair and care and treat what we have really well and so I think that there is kind of this like world of like sustainable fashion that's largely like unattainable mm -hmm. um because it's like high-end it's luxury it's not accessible it's a white and affluent and um you know it like becomes another form of status to be able to like buy quote unquote perfectly yeah and so I think for Justin and I, when we're like trying to put out work, um, we make it a point to like be thoughtful about where we're purchasing from. Um, you know, we look for like independent certification of something being sweatshop free. Mm -hmm. um, we'll prioritize it being made in the United States as long as the place can like provide us with certification that it's not made with prison labor. Um, because that's like a major issue lots of people don't realize like oh I'm buying something that's made in the US so that means it wasn't made in a sweatshop it might actually have been made with like a state sanctioned slave yeah. labor and so you really have to be like thoughtful and um, you know I think like the print industry and like print shops have not always had the best history with like being smart about who they work with as suppliers and it does take a lot of effort and a lot of emails to like demand transparency yeah. um, from the per people that you buy from. And so I think like ultimately for us, it's about like striking that balance between trying to find something that like meets that standard of like, okay, the person that made this was compensated fairly. Yeah. Um, or it maybe contains like a certain quantity of like sustainable materials, yeah. um, but also recognizing that I don't want something to be so expensive that like 99% of people can't afford to buy it. Exactly, exactly. And, mm. and I, I do agree with you. There is sort of this, um, and, and I feel like it, it kind of goes across all, all things, not just like consumerism for like purchasing, but like consumerism, like you can go to an extreme with like 
extreme, you know, veganism. You can go to extreme mm -hmm. um, being like, oh, I only want to eat things that, you know, weren't made in a lab or uh -huh. na natural beauty. I have a problem with like the overhypeness of like clean beauty and natural beauty because right. I feel like- Well, there's that. so much pseudoscience in that field yeah. too, where people are like, oh, there's no chemicals. And I'm like, honey, everything is chemicals. Like yeah. this, is, this is bad science. Yeah. Um, you know, and I think there's a lot of that in the fashion world where there's like a lot of greenwashing. There's a lot of like misrepresentation yeah. of stuff. Like I know that there's, um, you know, like, upsides and downsides to like organic versus like non-organic cotton when it comes to like the quantity of water that it takes to grow organic cotton and so like I think that like we need to be able to recognize that there are like complications um like the U.S. does not have the manufacturing infrastructure for us to move a hundred percent of clothing production back here we don't have the farmland or the infrastructure to do like a hundred percent organic linen farming in the u.s and so like we need to be like utilizing technology utilizing resources and like thinking creatively as we go forward and so i think i kind of tend to like <laughs> um push back or against like a certain type of like ludditeism in yeah. the fashion industry that says that like in order to fix this we have to go back yeah um, yeah you know, I think that there's a balance there. Oh, totally. And, and, and I, I think of it with food mainly because I think about, you know, like people who will preach certain things about carbon footprints, but then they're so <laughs> insistent on having acai bowls. And you know, it's just as good as acai blueberries and you can get them <laughs> local and they yeah. don't travel as far. So people, it's like, you need to understand that there, are, you know, like what is important is when you do have companies like yours that do try to, to make, the, the complications less complicated by being transparent. So it's like, if you care about this, these are the things that we can control consistently. Right. These are the things that we can do. And like, for me, the exchange is that I'm part of like, you know, I like your art and I like to wear your art and I like what it, how it makes me feel. Um, and it makes me much more conscious about my spending, much more conscious about just like, what do I not need? I mean, and also like, I don't have to, I am wearing them today, but I don't have to wear pants. Here, you know? <laughs> it makes them very key for quarantine life. If we're yeah, being, definitely. Like, like lounging. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, if you want to add another ethical practice, you can say like pants-free clothing, you know. Right. Like, I mean, but you know. But yeah, you, uh, a lot of your art, you have like some of descriptors on your um, biography on your page. And I wondered what your favorites from like, I, I saw Harry Clark and Aubrey uh, Beardsley were referenced. Mm -hmm. they, they both, I, I love the entire um, Victorian era and I love floriography and like the mm -hmm. meanings of things. What are some like pieces that, that you can remember or, or ideas that you just kind of feel drawn to from those people? I mean, I think that, like, I'm drawn to, like, just, like, the simultaneous, like, like, I think a lot of the work is, like, very, like, ordered yeah. and specific and precise, but there's still, like, a lot of chaos. Yeah. Um, like, the, the, the pieces are really, really full. Yeah. Um, but then also they'll use, like, a lot of negative space, and I think I'm, like, drawn to like the mannerisms of work that was etched and so lots of times I'm doing pen and ink work that's like replicating yeah. 
the look of like something that was etched and I don't like I've done etchings it's not like my favorite <laughs> way to create work I just I just I don't feel like um the like gestural nature of like my etchings is as precise as I want it to be and so I end up using like pen and ink to replicate that a lot um so yeah I don't know I think like the subject matter is also like a little dark and melancholy and I think I might be drawn to that too. <laughs> Me too. I mean, anything with like, um, my, my husband and I specifically are always like looking at um, mythology around the underworld and like uh -huh. Persephone and like how like Persephone, like what would she be? Because I have a character that I'm working on um, with that name and how would she be in the modern world? Would she be someone with you know, a certain mental disorder? Would she be someone who like, you know, has like extreme mood swings or someone who explores like light and dark and, mm -hmm. but how that inherently makes you dark when you want to explore like multifaceted mm -hmm. of, of your personality. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, I say like, I love your art and it makes me feel good, but most of it's like skull and bones and like, <laughs> but it makes you feel good I don't know yeah. I mean I think that like I think you need a little bit of both like I I like that balance I want I want a little bit of both like I you know we have this store that's open to the public and so I get to interact with like a ton of different people that interact with my work in real time and oftentimes they'll make commentary on the work without knowing that I'm the artist <laughs> <laughs> because I'm just like sitting behind the counter yeah, yeah. You know, hanging out and and they have no awareness that they're like talking to the person that made the work and so like it's it's this very interesting experience of like you know I'll have somebody that comes in that like looks like my mom it's like well this is a little creepy don't you think <laughs> and I'm like I know isn't it great <laughs> you know and so like yeah I mean I think I'm I'm not drawn to it because I think it's like particularly edgy or like transgressive in that way. I think that I'm just like, I don't understand why this is edgy or transgressive. Yeah. Like I find it quite beautiful, <laughs> yeah. you know? Um, and I think it also comes back to like a deep, like American discomfort with death. Um, you know, where people don't like, there's something like, deeply discomforting to them about confronting yeah. frailty or their own limitations and like art that like speaks to that I think is like like some people just don't want to go there yeah well it's it's um it's an it's like this avoidance structure and like it's built into some puritanical thought like eventually you'll enjoy something um so you don't want to think about death as like a part of life you don't right. think about death as like you know I, I, I've always had such a, I, I, I love just exploring the idea of our mortality because I feel like it makes life so much sweeter. And I feel like knowing that you're part of a process, knowing that you're part of like a possible resurrection, knowing mm -hmm. that like everything has a season and so do we, like that, that makes life nice. I don't, right. but, but yeah, I, I get that. Like people, there's a lot of avoidance in our culture here and you know, it's leaking and, and coming to a boil right now socially, and mm -hmm. it's, it's crazy. I think it's there whether or not you choose to engage with it. You yeah. know, you're, you're manufacturing a reality that's not real. Yeah. You yeah. Know? 
it's a bubble. Mm -hmm. bubble. I used to live in a place just outside of Houston um, called the Woodlands. And um, some of this, the legend is that some of the same developers that inspired the Stepford Wives developed this suburban town. And they, they wanted you to not leave. They have churches, banks, schools, retirement homes, like everything is inside. So you never leave. So whenever people wanted to move out or talked about leaving, the comment was always, you want to leave the bubble? Mm -hmm. And I didn't really know what that meant at, when I wanted to leave the bubble. I was just like, I'd like to continue seeing the world. Like I have always won. What? Yeah. But I think that there is a sort of, let's just stay in our little chicken coops and not, you know, go free range, so to speak. Well, I mean, I think it relates to like, like, even if you think about like the fact that we like, like our funerary rituals and stuff are so like obsessed with like hiding the fact that the person is dead, you know, like, like we pump them full of chemicals and we like make them up. And like, it's like, we have such a deep discomfort with our own mortality that we are like literally giving a dead person a makeover so that we can feel more comfortable, you know? And like other cultures don't have that same relationship with death, you know? Like there are people where it's like, okay, the, the body's gonna be in the home with us for a week and we're gonna like collectively experience grief and like engage in grief together. And I think that that like speaks to like that like American, like autonomous, like isolationism where it's like, no, it's like, very like ritual and symbolic and like prim and proper and like how dare anyone see me be like upset I, I don't know like what a what a limiting thing uh, it, it well it's a fear of showing a uh, perceived weakness and mm -hmm. like you know weaknesses can be your strengths because they they acknowledge your ability to adapt and to change and to change your mind and yeah it's a, you know, but yeah, on, on that note, I wanted to ask you something I ask all my guests, which is mm -hmm. what right now there's like all sorts of things going on and you are part of like providing like a, an output with your, um, with your products and ideas. And, you know, just so the audience knows, like, it's just, you, you constantly like uh, donated to different funds during this quarantine mm -hmm. because you recognize like the need for that. And, all of that aside, um, what kind of message would you like to send out to the universe, however you may define that today? Whew. Um, I mean, I think that it's like self-work is like the work. Um, you know, I think that like, obviously like access to like therapy is a privilege, um, mm -hmm. like a deep privilege. And if you have access, like go for it. Yeah. Um, put the time in, like, get to know yourself. Um, I think that um, if you can't afford it, there are still tons of ways to do that, like, deep self-exploratory work. Um, I think that, like, a huge part of, um, like, collective healing, whether that be, like, anti-racism work or, like, unpacking, like, internalized misogyny or, like, generational trauma is like taking the time to like know yourself to know like where do my beliefs come from um 
what has life taught me that I might not be aware of? What am I carrying around with me? And how do I distinguish like things that are done to me or things that are taught to me from like the true essence of who I am as a person? (laughs) Um, And so I think that like, it's like very scary to like, in some ways, like take time to like confront your psyche. (laughs) But I think it's like really worthwhile. And I think that people feel like a ton of shame around that. Yeah. And so I think like, it's really important to like, frame that like outside of shame and like view it as like, hey, this is like a moment of like collective liberation. You know, like, I, I liberate myself, I liberate you. Yeah. Um, you know. Yeah, embrace the embrace the light and the dark within yourself. Mm-hmm. You may find things that you don't like about yourself, but you can acknowledge mm-hmm. those and you can change them or you can just understand yourself. Right. Mm-hmm. Like ownership over your choices, yeah. ownership over your history, responsibility for your actions going forward. Totally. Yeah. Um, well, thank you so much to all for coming yeah. on the show. Glad to finally see you. <laughs> it was great talking to you. Yeah. Self-work is the work. <laughs>